Section one of Mark Twain A Biography by Albert Bigelow Payne Volume three Part one nineteen hundred to nineteen oh seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mark Twain A Biography Volume three Part one nineteen hundred to nineteen oh seven. Chapter two hundred and twelve The Return of the Conqueror. It would be hard to exaggerate the stir which the newspapers and the public generally made over the homecoming of Mark Twain. He had left America, staggering under heavy obligation, and set out on a pilgrimage of redemption. At the moment when this Mecca was in view, a great sorrow had befallen him, and stirred a world-wide and soul-deep tide of human sympathy. Then there had followed such ovation as has seldom been conferred upon a private citizen, and now, approaching old age, still in the fullness of his mental vigor, he had returned to his native soil with the prestige of these honors upon him, and the vast added glory of having made his financial fight single-handed and won. He was heralded literally as a conquering hero. Every paper in the land had an editorial telling the story of his debts, his sorrow, and his triumphs. He had behaved like Walter Scott says Howells, as millions rejoiced to know who had not known how Walter Scott had behaved till they knew it was like Clemens. Howells acknowledges that he had some doubts as to the permanency of the vast acclaim of the American public, remembering, or perhaps assuming, a national fickleness. Says Howells, he had hitherto been more intelligently accepted or more largely imagined in Europe and I suppose it was my sense of this that inspired the stupidity of my saying to him when we came to consider the state of polite learning among us, you mustn't expect people to keep it up here as they do in England. But it appeared that his countrymen were only wanting the chance, and they kept it up in honor of him past all precedent." Clemens went to the Earlington Hotel and began search for a furnished house in New York. They would not return to Hartford, at least not yet. The associations there were still too sad, and they immediately became more so. Five days after Mark Twain's return to America, his old friend and co-worker, Charles Dudley Warner, died. Clemens went to Hartford to act as a pallbearer, and while there looked into the old home. To Sylvester Baxter of Boston, who had been present, he wrote a few days later, It was a great pleasure to me to renew the other days with you, and there was a pathetic pleasure in seeing Hartford and the house again. But I realize that if we ever enter the house again to live, our hearts will break. I am not sure that we shall ever be strong enough to endure that strain. Even if the surroundings had been less sorrowful, it is not likely that Clemens would have returned to Hartford at this time. He had become a world character, a dweller in capitals. Everywhere he moved, a world revolved about him. Such a figure in Germany would live naturally in Berlin, in England, London, in France, Paris in Austria, Vienna. In America, his headquarters could only be New York. 
Clemens empowered certain of his friends to find a home for him, and Mr. Frank N. Doubleday discovered an attractive and handsomely furnished residence at 14 West 10th Street, which was promptly approved. Doubleday, who was going to Boston, left orders with the agent to draw the lease and take it up to the new tenant for signature. To Clemens he said, "'The house is as good as yours. All you got to do is to sign the lease. You can consider it all settled.' When Doubleday returned from Boston a few days later, the agent called on him and complained that he couldn't find Mark Twain anywhere. It was reported at his hotel that he had gone and left no address. Doubleday was mystified. Then, reflecting, he had an inspiration. He walked over to 14 West 10th Street and found what he had suspected. Mark Twain had moved in. He had convinced the caretaker that everything was all right and he was quite at home. Doubleday said, "'Why, you haven't executed the lease yet.' "'No,' said Clemens, "'but you said the house was as good as mine,' to which Doubleday agreed, but suggested that they go up to the real estate office and give the agent notice that he was in possession of the premises. Doubleday's troubles were not quite over, however. Clemens began to find defects in his new home, and assumed to hold Doubleday responsible for them. He sent a daily postal card complaining of the windows, furnace, the range, the water, whatever he thought might lend interest to Doubleday's life. As a matter of fact, he was pleased with the place. To McAllister he wrote, We were very lucky to get this big house furnished. There was not another one in town procurable that would answer us, but this one is all right space enough in it for several families the rooms all old-fashioned great size the house at fourteen west tenth street became suddenly one of the most conspicuous residences in new york the papers immediately made its appearance familiar many people passed down that usually quiet street stopping to observe or point out where mark twain lived there was a constant procession of callers of every kind Many were friends, old and new, but there was a multitude of strangers. Hundreds came merely to express their appreciation of his work, hoping for a personal word, or a handshake, or an autograph. But there were other hundreds who came with this thing and that thing, axes to grind, and there were newspaper reporters to ask his opinion on politics, or polygamy, or women's suffrage, on heaven and hell and happiness on the latest novel, on the war in Africa, the troubles in China, on anything under the sun, important or unimportant, interesting or inane, concerning which one might possibly hold an opinion. He was unfailing copy, if they could but get a word with him. Anything that he might choose to say upon any subject whatever was seized upon and magnified and printed with headlines. Sometimes opinions were invented for him. If he let fall a few words, they were multiplied into a column interview. That reporter worked a miracle equal to the loaves and fishes, he said of one such performance. Many men would have become annoyed and irritable as these things continued, but Mark Twain was greater than that. Eventually he employed a secretary to stand between him and the wash of the tide as a sort of a breakwater 
but he seldom lost his temper no matter what was the request which was laid before him for he recognized underneath it the great tribute of a great nation of course his literary valuation would be affected by the noise of the general applause magazines and syndicates besought him for manuscripts he was offered fifty cents and even a dollar a word for whatever he might give them he felt a childlike gratification in these evidences of his market advancement but he was not demoralized by them he confined his work to a few magazines and in november concluded an arrangement with the new management of harper and brothers by which that firm was to have the exclusive serial privilege of whatever he might write at a fixed rate of twenty cents per word a rate increased to thirty cents by a later contract which also provided an increased royalty for the publication of his books the united states as a nation does not confer any special honors upon private citizens we do not have decorations and titles even though there are times when it seems that such things might be not inappropriately conferred certain of the newspapers more lavish in their enthusiasm than others were inclined to propose as one paper phrased it some peculiar recognition something that should appeal to samuel l clemens the man rather than mark twain the literate just what form this recognition should take is doubtful for the case has no exact precedent perhaps the paper thought that mark twain was entitled as he himself once humorously suggested to the thanks of congress for having come home alive and out of debt but it is just as well that nothing of the sort was ever seriously considered the thanks of the public at large contained more substance and was a tribute much more to his mind the paper above quoted ended by suggesting a very large dinner and memorial of welcome as being more in keeping with the republican idea and the american expression of goodwill but this was an unneeded suggestion if he had eaten all the dinners proposed he would not have lived to enjoy his public honors a month as it was he accepted many more dinners than he could eat and presently fell into the habit of arriving when the banqueting was about over and the after-dinner speaking about to begin even so the strain told on him his friends saw that he was wearing himself out says howells and perhaps this was true for he grew thin and pale and contracted a hacking cough he did not spare himself as often as he should have done once to richard watson gilder he sent this line of regrets in bed with a chest cold and other company wednesday dear gilder i can't if i were a well man i could explain with this pencil but in these circumstances i will leave it all to your imagination was it grady who killed himself trying to do all the dining and speeching no old man no no ever yours mark he became again the guest of honor at the lotus club which had dined him so lavishly seven years before just previous to his financial collapse that former dinner had been a distinguished occasion but never before had the lotus club been so brimming with eager hospitality as on the second great occasion in closing his introductory speech president frank lawrence said 
we hail him as one who has borne great burdens with manliness and courage who has emerged from great struggles victorious and the assembled diners roared out their applause clemens in his reply said your president has referred to certain burdens which i was weighted with i am glad he did as it gives me an opportunity which i wanted to speak of those debts you all knew what he meant when he referred to it and of the poor bankrupt firm of c l webster and company no one has said a word about those creditors there were ninety-six creditors in all and not by a finger's weight did ninety-five out of the ninety-six add to the burden of that time they treated me well they treated me handsomely i never knew i owed them anything not a sign came from them it was like him to make that public acknowledgment he could not let an unfair impression remain that any man or any set of men had laid an unnecessary burden upon him his sense of justice would not consent to it he also spoke on that occasion of certain national changes how many things have happened in the seven years i have been away from home we have fought a righteous war and a righteous war is a rare thing in history we have turned aside from our comfort and seen to it that freedom should exist not only within our own gates but in our own neighborhood we have set cuba free and placed her among the galaxy of free nations of the world we started out to set those poor filipinos free but why that righteous plan miscarried perhaps i shall never know we have also been making a creditable showing in china and that is more than all the other powers can say the yellow terror is threatening the world but no matter what happens the united states says that it has had no part in it since i have been away we have been nursing free silver we have watched by its cradle we have done our best to raise that child but every time it seemed to be getting along nicely along came some pestiferous republican and gave it the measles or something i fear we will never raise that child we've done more than that we elected a president four years ago we've found fault and criticized him and here a day or two ago we go and elect him for another four years with votes enough to spare to do it over again 
one club followed another in honoring mark twain the aldine the st nicholas the press clubs and other associations and societies his old friends were at these dinners howells aldridge depew rogers ex-speaker reed and they praised him and jibed him to his and their hearts content it was a political year and he generally had something to say on matters municipal national or international and he spoke out more and more freely as with each opportunity he warmed more righteously to his subject at the dinner given to him by the st nicholas club he said with deep irony gentlemen you have here the best municipal government in the world and the most fragrant and the purest the very angels of heaven envy you and wish they had a government like it up there you got it by your noble fidelity to civic duty by the stern and ever watchful exercise of the great powers lodged in you as lovers and guardians of your city by your manly refusal to sit inert when base men would have invaded her high places and possessed them by your instant retaliation when any insult was offered you in her person or any assault was made upon her fair fame it is you who have made this government what it is it is you who have made it the envy and despair of the other capitals of the world and god bless you for it gentlemen god bless you and when you get to heaven at last they'll say with joy oh there they come the representatives of the perfectest citizenship in the universe show them the archangel's box and turn on the limelight those hearers who in former years had been indifferent to mark twain's more serious purpose began to realize that whatever he may have been formerly he was by no means now a mere fun-maker but a man of deep and grave convictions able to give them the fullest and most forcible expression he still might make them laugh but he also made them think and he stirred them to a truer gospel of patriotism he did not preach a patriotism that meant a boisterous cheering of the stars and stripes right or wrong but a patriotism that proposed to keep the stars and stripes clean and worth shouting for in an article perhaps it was a speech begun at this time he wrote we teach the boys to atrophy their independence we teach them to take their patriotism at second hand to shout with the largest crowd without examining into the right or wrong of the matter exactly as boys under monarchies are taught and have always been taught we teach them to regard as traitors and hold in aversion and contempt such as do not shout with the crowd and so here in our democracy we are cheering a thing which of all things is most foreign to it 
and out of place the delivery of our political conscience into somebody else's keeping this is patriotism on the russian plan howells tells of discussing these vital matters with him in an upper room looking south over a quiet open space of back yards where he says we fought our battles in behalf of the filipinos and boers and he carried on his campaign against the missionaries in china howells at the time expressed an amused fear that mark twain's countrymen who in former years had expected him to be merely a humorist should now in the light of his wider acceptance abroad demand that he be mainly serious but the american people were quite ready to accept him in any of his phases fully realizing that whatever his philosophy or doctrine it would have somewhat of a humorous form and whatever his humor there would somewhere be wisdom in it he had in reality changed little for a generation he had thought the sort of things which he now with advanced years and a different audience felt warranted in uttering openly the man who in sixty four had written against corruption in san francisco who a few years later had defended the emigrant chinese against persecution who at the meetings of the monday evening club had denounced hypocrisy in politics morals and national issues did not need to change to be able to speak out against similar abuses now and a newer generation was willing to herald mark twain as a sage as well as a humorist and on occasion to quite overlook the absence of the cap and bells End of chapter 212, The Return of the Conqueror, read by John Greenman.